0: Hi, my name is Pete Bauer from the Pete Bauer blog.
1: And my name is Dorothea Bauer, and I am his daughter.
0: And she's the marketing person, marketing...
1: I, I was a guru last time, and You're a guru, so. but
0: yeah, I'm, I'm, not convi- <laughs> I'm not committed to that right now, so...
1: All right. Um, First draft.
0: You're a marketing personnel. Marketing... Person-
1: I went from guru <laughs> to personnel. <laughs> All
0: right. Obviously, we'll need to address this in our next staff meeting. Um... No, anyway, she's here and she's uh, very skilled in marketing and analysis. And so we are here to talk about our projects and kind of the things that we're learning along the way. You were just talking about as we were starting about how you can't stand when people don't finish things when they start them. Well, yeah. Why is that?
1: It just doesn't make sense to me. Like my brain can't comprehend why some people will start something and they have time to finish it. And they don't. I don't understand why that is. It's one thing if you have writer's block where there's a significant reason why you're stopping something. But to stop it just to stop it makes no sense.
0: Yeah. You know, here's here's a story which perfectly puts that for you in perspective. (laughs) Your last year in college, you called me and you said, Dad, I'm getting senioritis, you know, and you've gotten really good grades up to this point. So I'm like, well, that's okay. So you'll graduate with like a couple C's or whatever. It's fine. You'll get your degree. And you're like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is, is since it's really hard for me to focus, I'm going to do all of my projects ahead of time so that I don't have to worry about them. And (laughs) I didn't understand that (laughs) at all.
1: Well, I had the syllabus. I mean,
0: (laughs) (laughs) no one does that. No one goes, gosh, it's really, I just want to graduate. I think I'll do my work now, three months in (laughs) advance. No one does that. Anyway, but you do, and that's kind of what makes you, you. (laughs) All right, so we wanted to talk about today about the marketplace, the Gabby Wells marketplace that we're entering and where it fits into our consumers' lives.
1: So to kind of give you guys an example of what we're talking about, when I was a preteen, I had a subscription to a magazine called Guidepost Suite 16, and I absolutely loved it because it talked about so many different things. It wasn't just about fashion or about celebrities. It wasn't one of those magazines. It had stories about girls my age who were going through real things. One girl, I remember, went undercover in a fat suit to kind of learn a little bit more about bullying for a project that she was working on. Another girl talked about how life was difficult for her because she traveled all the time with her family. Another girl talked about overcoming issues like cutting and, you know, hating yourself and all that other stuff. But at the same time, you also paired that with things that were going on in the world and cool new stories that were coming up and new technology and all this sorts of stuff that was really great. And at the same time, it also had stories about faith. So it was this really great magazine for me because I was a young girl of faith. And it not only had stories about girls that were my age, but it also had stories about things that were going on in the world and stories about faith. So The Faith was just one part of this magazine, and that's why I loved it so much. I wasn't subscribing to The Magnificat, which is a magazine for Catholics that has the Mass in it, I, which is an awesome magazine, by the way, if you want it. It's really great, and I like it a lot. But it wasn't that. That's not what I was looking for when I was that young. I was looking for something that I could really identify with and enjoy. And unfortunately, the magazine ended up ending while I was still a teenager, But, but I loved it so much, and I think that was because it was all-encompassing for me in my life. It had stories about so many different things and faith was just one part of that. And that's kind of how we're trying to define Gabby Wells in our marketplace. Gabby is a normal teenage girl. She just happens to be Catholic and so her faith is gonna be part of her journey. And we hope that young girls who are religious really identify with that.
0: Yeah, we've we've gotten some really good responses from our beta readers with the different stuff that we've written so far. Part of that is they like the way that Gabby's faith Interacts in the book. It's not overbearing. It just comes up when it would come up in her life Certain times in your life Let's say you're someone is sick or something and then you start praying and go man I I really should do this more often or I should be at church more often or whatever and it just naturally comes up in People's lives especially if you're a teen of faith who hasn't at this point especially in the novellas Gabby hasn't completely claimed her faith as her own these novellas are the transition of Gabby's faith being her parents faith to her finally saying okay yes this is my faith and then trying to figure out what to do with that and another thing we've been focusing on with the beta readers is that they have an emotional connection with Gabby Gabby's a kind of a complex person she's not always the most likable person but she's a real person I think so we wanted to make sure that her personality and stuff was inviting and enticing and intriguing and it's been good because when we've asked those questions and that's something that you need to think about when you're creating questions for your beta readers when we've asked those questions we've gotten very different responses for example when we asked the question do you like the Gabby character we got you know completely yes but when you say did you emotionally connect with the Gabby character some people are like well her humor is kinda of biting at times and so I don't always connect with her because her humor is just so biting. And so then we looked at that going, oh, well, if we just keep her humor, but maybe take some of the edge off, then that may resolve that problem. So one of the things that we've learned in interacting with our beta readers is you want to make sure you ask all the questions that are relevant. And, and honestly, like for us, it didn't occur to us to ask about that the first round, but the more depth you get into, the more specific, I guess, you get into the questions the better the answers are in finding those little nuggets of information that are maybe gaps or flaws in your story that you wouldn't have gotten if you just added broad questions like, did you like the character? Did you like the story? Did you like the faith journey or whatever?
1: It's really been an interesting journey for us to try and develop characters that not only readers develop an emotional connection to, but also characters that readers can identify with and that's been one of the interesting responses we've received from our survey is which character did you identify with and everyone had a different one.
0: Yeah it was interesting because we went out of our way to when we created these characters is that when you would look at them if you were to see them on the street you would immediately categorize them into their specific categories but they have a lot more deeper levels and so behind like an onion the more you peel down the more you realize that you know the beautiful model Rich Girl doesn't have it all, like you would think, or the geeky guy isn't nearly as much of a wimp as you may think he is. And there's just a lot of different layers in there. And so as we've created and tried to round out these characters, as you mentioned, what was interesting is that, do you like Gabby as a character? That's, that's one answer. And then it said, well, which character do you identify with? And almost every single beta readers come back with a different character, which to me means that those characters are real enough, that if you have each person Identifying with one of the characters, then that character is round enough for them to go, Yep, I see myself as that character, and another person's, I see myself as that character, which means I believe we have pretty well rounded people in the story.
1: And if you're also a fan of other successful series like Harry Potter or The Hunger Games, you're going to identify with different characters in those stories as well. Like, for example, I never really identified with Harry. I loved reading about Harry. I just didn't really identify with him because he's in such a unique place at the beginning of the first book. You know, I had a really great relationship with my family and he has a really terrible relationship with his. And then you're introduced to Ron and Hermione. And I, I sort of identified with Hermione a little bit because she was the girl and she cared about getting good grades. But the character... Yeah, and she's you without magic. <laughs> But the character I actually identified the most with was Neville, reading those books, because I'm an incredibly clumsy person, and yes, so is he. (laughs) And so um, reading those books and how he kind of tries to find his own place in Hogwarts and among Harry and his friends and kind of screwing up, but still having a good heart and having good intentions, but things not always working out the way he intended for them to. I Sounds really <laughs> vaguely familiar to me. <laughs> I really identified with Neville, probably most in that entire series.
0: Well in, in the Hunger Games too, you identified more with PETA than you did with Katniss, right? Oh yeah. And I think that's true and I think that's part of what we were trying to achieve here is well rounded characters that that gives different readers the chance to identify with different characters. And at the end, you mentioned Harry Potter, you know, your, your generation's the Harry Potter generation.
1: We are, and proudly. <laughs>
0: My generation is the Star Wars generation.
1: And you should be equally proud. And
0: I mean the original trilogy, not the
1: crap after that. No, we just call those fan films those, in our house. <laughs> uh.
0: So what's really great about those stories is they they somehow tapped into something in the culture at that time that just was like wildfire and it was more and we talked about this last time where part of the the magic of star wars was especially after empire strikes back and the end of empire strikes back that time between empire strikes back and return of the jedi coming out was insane people talked about was darth vader really his father for three years until that movie came out and you guys because everything's on demand and there's this binge consumption model out there You guys don't have to wait for anything and so it's surprising even where everything was accessible when these books came out Harry Potter still did that because you had to wait for the next book to come out and so it surprises me that and and it makes me happy that even in today's model there's a chance for that kind of magic where you're anticipating the next thing and not everything's available right at once. You you have to wait, and it builds up uh, tension and drama.
1: And it really is a very big part of your childhood. I remember the last Harry Potter movie came out when I was graduating from high school. And I just felt like my childhood was over sitting in that theater because Harry Potter was ending and I was graduating and going off to college and it was just, and then Toy Story decided to come out with a third movie where Andy goes off to college and I was just thinking to myself, okay, Hollywood, you just got to calm down. I can only take so much (laughs) at a time.
0: Well, and you were lucky because Harry Potter stories, you kind of lived the time that he did. So it was easy for you to identify throughout. And, you know, the best thing obviously would be, I think any author, including us, would love their work to make the, have that sort of transcendent quality where it somehow reaches a core niche inside each person that they, they kind of identify and, and want to go through this journey and travel and, and it matters. So that would be great if that happens with our work. I don't, you know, that's a insanely lofty goal, but it that would be awesome. That That's where real magic, real magic happens, I guess as writers or, or artists you know your goal is to go out there and try to reach people and it's interesting because people I think have a false notion that the world is waiting for you to follow your dreams and that the world is populated by positions of dream jobs and it's not true I mean if, if you look at the the world The world obviously needs a lot of office workers and day laborers and plumbers and things like that. So, you know, when you're trying to reach these dreams and have these transcendent experiences, you're doing it on top of the real world. I think it's a false expectations that a lot of people have, especially in college where they're like, well, I'm really interested in art history. Well, you know, that's great, but there's no jobs for art history. So to have the expectation that you're gonna get out of school and have a job doing what you love to do, that'd be great. But oftentimes you have to make that happen somehow. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with what we're doing as well. And, you know, one of the challenges that we have is well, we call it the Matt Maher equation, but Matt Maher is a, he's a musician and he's a friend of the families and he's quite popular in the Christian music scene. And the Matt Maher equation just comes up and it's a, it's a general term we call just because we know Matt Maher, but a lot of Christian artists, have to weigh the Christian I don't know think of two scales one is the Christian component and one is the entertainment component and you could look at this like with with the movie Noah recently right there's the scales there that have to be balanced with enough Christian elements to attract and retain the Christian fan and enough non I don't wanna say non Christian but generic entertainment elements that will entice anyone else. Again, we, we call it the Matt Maher equation only because we know Matt, but it's a challenge that any Christian artist would do. And it's something that we've talked about extensively in our meetings where, as we have said from the very beginning, our storyline is the, what we consider the Paul to St. Paul conversion story. It's what does a character of faith do after they understand what their faith requires of them. And we talk about that, you know, like, well, we want to honor that. But as we've just said, is that our book isn't a Catholic book per se. It's about a character who is Catholic. So there needs to be enough Catholic in there to entice Catholics. There needs to be enough Christianity in there to entice Christians. And obviously Catholicism is Christian. But you know what I mean? People think of those. Some people think of those differently. I don't know why. And then it also has to have enough raw entertainment value to hopefully reach people outside of the faith. So that's just been a a tough kind of thing. We've had those discussions with our beta readers and they're like, well, I don't know if this is Catholic specific enough or, and then you have other people go, no, I love exactly where it is right now. So we haven't really figured out that equation yet, but it's something that I think I have much more appreciation for, for any artist that's trying to represent a Christian element of of faith in their entertainment in a way that is enjoyable by both Christians and non-Christians.
1: And there's such a potential for risk in these kinds of stories. It's one of the reasons I really enjoy sci-fi stories, not necessarily because they have high production value, but because the risk is so much greater when, if you press a button, all of a sudden the universe explodes. (laughs) Right. Um, The risk is so much greater when the consequence is eternity. And that's really what our characters struggle with.
0: Right, is the risk is that faith component adds a level of eternal risk, which wouldn't exist without it and we love Matt's music all of it and and we've just seen his him grow in his music from the early albums to the later ones and it's just been interesting to see that faith expression and it's it's been for us an easy way to kind of see that continual challenge and and I've heard about it from from fans of Chris Tomlin or whatever and there's there's always going to be haters of everything I'm not saying that but it's an ongoing struggle of Christian artists anywhere is it enough you know you're going to have people who are look like look at Noah i mean Noah is a perfect example of Noah is a very short amount of information in the Bible, and I haven't seen the movie yet. But a lot of people have an understanding of Noah from the children's Bible, not really the Bible itself. And so there's more of a cultural understanding of Noah than a biblical understanding. Because when you read the biblical understanding of Noah, it's very limited in in its information so if you're a filmmaker or if you're gonna write let's say a a hundred thousand page fiction or or semi-fiction book on Noah you have to fill in a lot of gaps and so that's just an ongoing challenge that Christian artists have to do is how they express their art while still upholding and reflecting their faith and balancing both that for believers and non-believers
1: well, one of the characters in our stories is actually not a person at all, but the city of Safety Harbor, where the story takes place.
0: Yeah, Safety Harbor is a great little town in the Tampa Bay area. We had spent some time there, and it's a wonderful place. It's the small little town surrounded by bigger towns, and it's, it's just amazing because you just drive off the main road and suddenly you're in you feel like you're in small-town America even though you're five miles away from everything everything wonderful like you know if you need to go shopping or to the movies or anything it's just a couple miles up the road
1: and all of the theme parks are only two hours away
0: and all of the theme parks are even closer actually over in Tampa so it was just an idyllic little community in the Tampa Bay area I grew up in st. Petersburg so i'm very fond of the tampa bay area so when i was looking for a location to put the gabby wells world in having had some experience in safety harbor it just was one of those places i mean i could have put it in saint pete where i grew up or tampa where i've been plenty of times or any of these surrounding cities but safety harbor was just an odd thing it's kind of like dunedin Dunedin's similar they have this really cute little main street and it seems like a small town in the middle of big towns and safety harbors the same way so I had to pick a location to put the characters in, and Safety Harbor just seemed to fit because it it was convenient from a storyteller's perspective because you could have that small town feel. You can have a small town sheriff. You can have this tight knit community, but that also has easy access to all the big city stuff that you need. Literally within 10 minutes, you could get anything you need. So it was just kind of a convenient place to go. But having done that, I spent some time in Safety Harbor and looked at all the different locations and a lot of the stuff that is in the books actually exists in real life and then some of it obviously doesn't. Like The main street that's in the books exists, the hardware store doesn't anymore. It used to exist for many years and it was an awesome little place to go inside. Safety Harbor has a gazebo, it has a pier, That has a spa, it has the churches, it has the big oak tree. It doesn't have a high school, because it's not big enough for a high school, but it does have a middle school and and an elementary school.
1: It does not have a sheriff's department. It
0: does not have its own sheriff's department. It's actually Pinellas County Sheriff covers the Safety Harbor. We've known people who have, have been in public office in Safety Harbor, and they're not nearly as morally challenged as some of the characters in the book. Just like anything else, it's a combination. It's Safety Harbor is inspired by it, but I was so taken by it, you know, I first got exposed to Safety Harbor when my wife and I, when I was working, I got as a reward for a project, a gift certificate to the spa. And so my wife and I, we went to the spa and then we walked down Main Street and I'm like, oh my gosh, this place is like a little piece of heaven. And so that's where I never forgot about it. If people are inspired to come visit Safety Harbor because they read these books, That's awesome to me. I just think it's one of the coolest little places in the world. And I don't know where I'm going to retire, but if it ended up being Safety Harbor, that wouldn't be so bad.
1: I think your love of Safety Harbor definitely comes through in the books.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's like, you know, I grew up watching, (laughs) watching like the Andy Griffith show where they had this little town in Mayberry. And, you know, it just, it was just one of those places like, you know, wow, this is, there's, these towns actually exist. And what was so odd about Safety Harbor is it's, it's location. It's literally, you know, I researched it and it's geographically like it's this landmass that sticks out into Old Tampa Bay. And so there's no reason to go down that landmass. If you're going like from Clearwater to Tarpon or if you're going from Clearwater down towards St. Peter, Tampa, there's no reason to go through Safety Harbor. The only people who go through Safety Harbor because the way it juts out into the water is people who live in Safety Harbor. So it's just one of these places that. That is just lucky geographically to be there, and that's how it retains its small-town feel. When I drove through it and and was researching it, I'm like, man, I wish I would have grown up here. This would have been a great place to to raise kids. So out of all the places that I knew in Tampa Bay, I I couldn't think of a better place to put it than in Safety Harbor.
1: I feel like we should almost contact the city and kind of find some marketing opportunity there because you've been so good for their tourism office in this particular podcast
0: yeah well I don't know like I said there are some corrupt people in positions of power in our story so I don't know if they really oh, like that yeah that's, yeah. That's yeah so anyway <laughs> um but it seemed I mean you have to set it somewhere right a, yeah. a book this version of Safety Harbor is like my made-up version of a Florida Mayberry a cool little small town so if you get a chance check it out it's really cool
1: Well, switching to marketing, we've had some interesting challenges presented to us in this whole process, mainly stemming from the fact that we have almost no money. Well, we have some
0: money, but yes, it's a challenge with any startup. I mean, really, if you're thinking of this as a business, and you really have to think of it as a business, as we've talked about before, there are startup costs. So we have some anticipated costs, but the challenges on a limited budget of of making the most of your money and that's that's really what you're talking about
1: well and when you're self-publishing as well certain funds have to be allocated for the development of the book for paying an editor or proofreading or book covers or having the book printed if that's what you want or any of the processes of getting the book available online all of that money has already been spent even before you write the check
0: right you should anticipate I don't know at least a thousand dollars on getting a book cover and getting editing on those. You should just plan that. Now you may get it for less or more, I don't know, but that's a really good rough estimate is you're gonna spend at least a thousand bucks on that. But that's like any other small business. You know, if you really have to approach it as that, a small business and their startup costs, and your books are your product, it's your menu item, it's your widget, it's whatever. So in order to get your product to market, you're gonna have to invest money, as little as that may be. (laughs)
1: So one of the decisions that we've made and that we mentioned in previous podcasts is to try and develop a street team of young people who are really passionate about the story, and then hopefully through word of mouth, more people become aware of the story's presence. And another thing that we've previously discussed on some of our earlier podcasts is figuring out what our potential readers like to do with their time, especially what they like to do when they're trying to have conversations about faith or when they're seeking faith-based literature or faith-based communities, any of that stuff, where do they go for that? And when we were doing research, we found a lot of people are really passionate about the best youth conferences in the nation for religious youth. There are some really great ones out there, and they sell books there and they have speakers there. So one thing that we're pursuing right now is the opportunity to maybe book some speaking engagements, or put our books in places that those conferences are going to be held, and contacting youth group leaders and seeing if they would be interested in reading the books and sharing it with their kids as well in their groups.
0: Yeah, because what we're trying to do, and this is, I mean, obviously, we don't want to go to conferences that don't align with with what we're, with the stories about. We talked about that all the time, about you don't want to misrepresent what you're trying to sell. Like, you know, for example, a friend of ours wrote a really nice book that's really a pro-life book. A pro-life approach to a, an unplanned pregnancy and so that would be good let's say at a pro-life rallies up in washington right that would if she could somehow align herself with that that would be great our book really wouldn't fit in that thing right because we don't really address that issue so it's one of those things where we'd have to look at the different types of conferences and see where our book would fit if we think there's a natural connection there then we're going to pursue that i think youth group leaders are another group of beta readers that i'd like to get involved because they could help us make sure that we're presenting the character in a way that does fit them potentially recommending that book to their kids and their youth groups not because of the sales piece but because it it augments their faith journey we did the same thing when we made our web series you know the whole goal of our web series back in the day was as a conversation starter an entertaining conversation starter for youth groups that was the whole intent was here's a 10-minute funny story they deal with the moral challenge. Here's a study guide that they can use that youth group leaders can use to then use that entertainment source to actually promote a discussion about that faith challenge. And so we want to do the same sort of thing if it fits with youth group leaders in these novels is the way we're presenting these stories. Is there value there for youth group leaders to use them in a way that can help them engage in conversation with their youth? about the different moral challenges that Gabby's facing. So that's something that we talked about a long time ago, but we've never really started to put a lot of effort behind it because we just weren't there yet. But that's something that we're going to spend a little more time doing.
1: So as important as it is to develop a street team of people to recommend your story to others, it's also equally important to be aware of, like we previously talked about, where your book fits in the marketplace. And you're not going to be able to do that if you haven't read the other books in that genre. So one of the things that we're doing right now is we're looking into popular mystery series that teens read, like Pretty Little Liars, for example, and seeing how they compare to our story and where our story fits in this marketplace. In addition to that, we're also looking into other non-mystery stories like John Green's A Fault in Our Stars or The Hunger Games or Twilight or these other stories that have also been incredibly successful. But what we really want to focus on is young adult mysteries, and that's kind of what we're doing the most research on right now.
0: Yeah, and as we talked about, the faith component kind of makes our book a little different. So it's going to be very hard to find like books in that respect. So that's what dorothy is talking about which is if we want to go attract the average teen then we have to look at those books that could be really good mysteries but don't have that faith component and see if there's any connection or similarities that we could legitimately say if you liked this book you would also like gabby wells that's kind of what you want to do in this virtual landscape is a lot of people come across books not because they found your book but because your book is recommended after they bought another book so your responsibility as an author is to kinda find out where your book fits in the landscape and there's not a lot of faith-based mysteries there's not a lot of Catholic Nancy Drews out there or whatever so that's just one of the challenges that we have but it's an important marketing aspect because you want to effectively connect with the average teen using the material that they enjoy reading
1: it's a really great opportunity, actually, I think, because these books already have an established fan base. And right. if we can kind of tap into that, we have a greater potential for success.
0: Yeah. And I think if we achieve from a quality standpoint what we hope to achieve, then I think it's not a leap to say that these books could be enjoyed as well from those people. And maybe those average people will enjoy that there's this character is dealing with eternal consequences too while trying to solve a mystery or save a friend or whatever. You know, we hope that works out. I think it's the next logical thing to do in our marketing strategy evaluation. And uh, we'll have more about that as as we get more into it. But I think it's a logical next step. And the last thing I wanted to talk about, well, Hugh Howey we had mentioned before. He's one of these outliers, they call him. He's one of these very successful self-published authors. He was a traditionally published author who then went self-publishing and has made a ton of money. And he has a great blog, which I will post a link in the show notes. But He talks about what he calls Red Book. And Red Book is not the magazine. There was a magazine called Red Book. It was like a women's magazine. He's talking about Red Box for books. So you go to Red Box, you go to the store, you see a movie you want, you hit the button, the DVD comes out, you rent it, you put it back or whatever. Or now you can even download Red Box movies on Verizon or what have you. So he's talking about that being able to scan a digital realm and then select the entertainment choice and have it readily available for you in whatever form factor you're looking for. Obviously, books, you would either get an ebook or a printed book. And there's been technology out there, I think, for about five years now where stores can actually print on demand at the store. You could go to an independent bookstore or, you know, a Barnes & Noble or what have you, and you could look through their catalog online, you know, look through a kiosk and say, "Oh, I really want Gabby Wells novel 1." And they go, "Okay, would you like that in ebook or printed?" And you go, "I'd like it printed." And then they hit a button and it prints a book that is print-on-demand quality like anything else you'd get from Amazon or what have you. At least that's what I hear. And then you they go, "All right, well when you go up to the cash register in 5 minutes it'll be ready for you." And I agree with Hugh Howie that that would be a great future. And I think it will be the future of bookstores because a lot of people don't mind reading books on ebooks, and that's great. But there's some people just like having the books in their hands. I'm one of them. I, I think you are, right?
1: Oh, very much so. Yes. So I would actually buy the hardcover version of a book that I really liked, even if I already owned the ebook.
0: Yeah. So you're a little nutty that way.
1: But they're just, they smell good. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just, they're better. I know.
0: I know we've established <laughs> your, your love and magic of holding pages in your hand. But the, anyway, there, there's always going to be readers. There's always going to be people who enjoy reading books. And that form factor, the way they interact with the book may be digital or printed, but they're always going to be readers out there. But the idea that you can go to a bookstore and go through a digital catalog, And then if you want to have that actually printed at the bookstore of high quality, that would be amazing. That would just be the answer to a lot of these problems because then you wouldn't need a lot of shelf space, right? You could just have a very small space and go, oh, you want this? That's great. Why don't you go have a coffee and we'll have your book ready in five minutes. That's pretty cool. I, I think that would be great if the printing of that technology was so good that would make it viable. That would be awesome.
1: I think that would be really cool. I genuinely do. I think it would be great To be able to go into a store and say, "All right," and get all of these, and not have to wait for the books to come in, I just think that's awesome. Of course, then one of the stores that I'm personally a fan of is an independent bookstore where I live. Um, They have a reputation for being able to get any book and. Their reputation would rather go away at that Mm. point, but I think it would still be a really great future for the industry.
0: No, I I think so.
1: I think I'd probably get kicked out because they'd be like, you broke the printer last time with your... (laughs) Yeah, you've printed so many books. You're
0: not allowed back.
1: (laughs) You're not allowed back.
0: (laughs) No books for you. (laughs) all right well that's all the time we have this time thank you for joining us as always don't be afraid to leave a comment in a comment section because we'd love to hear from you
1: or feel free to email us at contact us at sunlightpress.com.
0: i love how you put on your radio voice whenever you do that
1: thank you it's
0: beautiful really
1: it's actually my phone voice like the phone operators nowadays because they don't talk like normal people thank you for calling
0: yeah, well, that's because they're not real people.
1: Well, I mean, we've got Siri. We should really improve upon the rest of them.
0: You know, my wife has a really, is a, a genius when it comes to phone voice. Like, she'll be deathly sick from allergies or something. And she'll be like, oh, I'm so sick. And then the phone will ring and she'll be like, hello. And then you'll be like, oh, hey, it's me. And she's like, oh, I'm so sick. <laughs> <laughs> and she's amazing. She can just turn on that phone voice in two seconds. So apparently you got that from your mother. Excellent. Yeah. So that's all the time we have. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys next time.